you'll get something out of what I say, but a lot out of what God says. So we're looking at Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 1. And the title of this sermon is The Joy of Being Found. When I was, well, I wasn't in kindergarten yet, so I was under, <clears throat> excuse me, I was under four years age, and my mother was helping at the church, and uh, the pastor had a son my age, and his car was in the garage, and he said, I have to go pick up the car, take the bus. Why don't I take the two boys with me? Uh, I suppose we were kind of in the way there in the office. So we did. And we got on the bus, and when we came to the stop, he pulled the cord. He went to the door with the two of us right behind him. He stepped off, and the bus driver shut the door and drove off. Now, we were both either three or four years old in the city of Lansing, Michigan, a big city. And, well, his son started to cry. I'm sure I didn't. But uh, at, here's Hugh Turner, about six foot two, 300 pounds, a big man running as fast as he could down the street, pounding on the back of the bus. And finally, somebody on the bus realized what happened and told the driver, and he stopped, and the doors opened, and we both stepped off. And I remember, oh, we're safe. We're saved. We were lost forever, but now we're okay. And uh, I don't know how he managed to do it, but he picked one of us up in each arm and carried us for about a block. And then he said, I got to put you boys down. But I remember that joy and that excitement. Have you ever been lost and suddenly you know where you are? You just, oh, what a relief. How good. Well, there's a joy in being found. Uh, Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Can you just hear them? Yeah, I mean, look at that. He's got all these sinners sitting around here. What, 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 I don't know. Can you hear them? You hear that muttering? And, yeah, they, were, they were not happy. Well, then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Well, I think we all know that excitement, enthusiasm is contagious. If you're in a large crowd and everybody's excited, it just kind of boosts your energy too. And if you're around a person who's got a lot of energy and a lot of excitement, it just makes you feel better. And of course, if enthusiasm isn't contagious, then lack of enthusiasm is probably contagious too. Ever been around a bunch of grumblers? Somehow, even if you're really happy, you just kind of feel like grumbling. You find something to grumble about because everybody else is, and it just drags you down. 
Pastor Ed uh, Rowell once wrote about watching a famous country singer perform a live concert at a county fair. He said that she and her band gave a technically perfect performance. They were polished, they were professional, and they didn't miss a beat. But as he watched her, he says he got the impression that she's not only tired, but she's bored out of her mind. There was just absolutely no enthusiasm in her performance, no evidence that she felt any of the songs deeply. And he reports after a couple of songs, he and his family left along with much of the crowd because it just wasn't an exciting place to be. He said on the way home, his oldest child started to sing one of the songs that the singer had been singing on, on the stage. And his little boy said, huh, you're singing that more gusto than she did on stage. And I think that that's the thing. We want gusto in our lives. We want excitement. We want enthusiasm. And it's contagious. What makes the difference? And as he thought about it, he said the next Saturday as he was finishing his sermon that he'd been working on all week, he said to himself, has this message that I'm working on touched me in any way? Has it made me think about my life at all? And if it hasn't, it's not going to affect anybody in their congregation either. I, I need to preach so that it affects me first. And then others will catch on. And he said his whole way of preaching changed. And he said it's kind of strange because I can fake sincerity pretty well. But I also realized that contrived passion is a pretty ugly thing to watch. And I felt a lot of times my congregation was watching it contrived passion. Well, as we read that lesson for today, as we just read it, I think we want to consider the difference between fake sincerity and real passionate enthusiasm. Our scripture tells us that the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, why did the tax collectors and sinners gather around to hear Jesus? He was a member of the religious elite, I suppose you could say. At least he claimed to be the son of God, so he must have been a religious person. And they were unclean, weren't they, in the eyes of God? They were religious outcasts. The rabbis were so devoted to protecting the holiness of God's word that they refused to even teach unclean folks anything about the word. Now, isn't that ridiculous? <laughs> to say to someone, you're a sinner, but I'm not going to tell you how to get saved because I don't want to talk to a sinner. Duh. <laughs> how are they going to get saved? Without the word, there's no faith. Nothing happens. But they refuse to teach them. But not Jesus. And I think the reason the religious and social outcasts were so attracted to him it's because they saw his enthusiasm and his passion for God. I may have told you this story once, and if I have, I apologize. I would have asked Pam if I had used it before, but her memory's not so good, so she couldn't remember if I used it. And uh, <laughs> she'll remember that I said that, though. For days, she'll remember that. At any rate, when I was young and in my first church, there was a lady who came to church with three little boys. She came every Sunday morning with these three little boys. And after the second or third week, I thought, well, she talks about her husband. The boys talk about their dad. I should go over and visit 
maybe I can get him to come to church with them. So I knocked at the door, and this young man came to the door holding a gun. I thought, oh, he must have been cleaning it. He said, what do you want? So I told him, I'm from the church, and I just came to invite you. He said, well, the first time a preacher knocks at my door, I forgive him. The second time, well, don't let there be a second time. <laughs> and I didn't. I maybe should have, but and I was chicken. <laughs> but 16, 17 years later, I was sent to another church in Minneapolis on the northeast side. And the first Sunday there, Phyllis came up to me and said, do you remember me? I said, of course I remember you, Philip. Uh, Phyllis. You came to my church for five years with your little boys. And she said, well, they're big now. And then this man came over and put his arm around her and said, do you remember me? I said, well, yeah, I remember you. <laughs> I remember you very well. He said, who am I? I said, well, you've got your arm around Phyllis, so I'm guessing you're her husband. He said, yeah, do you remember my name? I said, yeah, Pat. I said, it's really good to see you in church. He said, let me tell you my story. He said, one Saturday night, he couldn't sleep very well, and he got up and was sitting in the chair and said, just a voice inside of me said, you know, you're kind of stupid. Your wife and your kids go enjoy going to that place every Sunday. You ought to go and see what they enjoy. I thought, yeah, I probably ought to check it out once. So he got dressed, and when she came out, she said, what are you all dressed up for? And he said, I'm going to church. And he said, after she came back uh, to life, she got up, and we went to church. He said, I was so amazed. Everybody was so glad to see me. They shook my hand. They called me my name. They welcomed me. They encouraged me to come back. He said, I never got that kind of a welcome in the bars when I went to him. He said, well, except from the bartender, because he got a lot of money from me. He said, and afterwards, the pastor came to me and said, you know, every Sunday we have three different men take the offering. Would you do that next Sunday? He said, I was amazed. He'd trust me to handle that plate full of money the first time he met me. He said, but I said, sure, I'd be glad to. So the next Sunday I got up. He said, and a voice inside of me said, they're not really that friendly. That was all fake. He said, and I pulled a shirt, T-shirt out of the drawer that on the front said, from the land of sky blue waters. Some of you will remember that ad. And on the back it said, Ham's the beer refreshing. He said, hmm, I'm going to wear that shirt. And I bet the pastor will come to me and say, oh, you know, we don't need you to take offering today after all. And I bet they won't be quite so friendly. I'll prove to Phyllis what fakes they are. So, so I got there the next Sunday, and, and right, we went that Sunday, and I knew Phyllis was embarrassed, and the boys were kind of pretending they didn't know me, but I said, I was just going to show them what fakes those people were at church. So the pastor came up to me and said, oh, Pat, I asked you last week to take offering. I thought, uh-huh. And he's going to say, we don't need you to do it after all. No, mm -hmm, I've got it. He said, instead, he said, the man who was supposed to do the center aisle is sick today. Would you do the center aisle? He said, well, that meant I had to walk up the aisle to the table and pick up the plates and take them because the other two were on the sides. He doesn't see my shirt, so I turned around to make sure he could see it. He didn't say a word. He said, so I took the offering. And afterwards, people came up to me and said, hey, Pat, thanks for helping out with that. You did a great job. Most people mess it up the first time they do it, and they're in the center because they forget to pass the plates or, or they forget to take them back. He said, everybody was telling me what a great job I did and how glad they were to see me and, and how nice it was. And he said, uh, 
man, they're either good actors or they mean it. So Sunday afternoon, I said to my wife, don't they have church at night? And she said, yeah. And he said, how come you never go? He said, well, because you didn't want me going in the morning and I didn't want to fight twice on Sunday. He said, well, I think we ought to go tonight. And he did. And they had a testimony time and a lot of people in the audience stood up and talked about what God had done for them, how he had changed their lives, how he had helped them, how he'd blessed them. And he said, I kept listening and thinking, these people really believe that stuff. And then the pastor preached and he said, if you don't know Jesus, you need to know him. And I want you to come up here to the altar tonight and find him. He said, and I went up there. He said, man, I felt good afterwards. He said, I gave my life to Jesus. He said, I can't tell you how that feels. I said, well, I think all of us know. He said, no, you didn't, unless you got as far into sin as I did, you don't know how good it is to be forgiven. Well, just a few weeks before that, uh, maybe a few months before that, Pat had gone to the uh, pastor and said, I just bought a 15-passenger van to give to the church. Uh, we need to get a lot of kids coming to Sunday school to learn about Jesus so they don't live the life I lived. He said, if I'd gone to church as a kid, I wouldn't have gotten in the messes I got into. So he said, well, boy, we don't have any kids to pick up. He said, well, I'll go out and find them. So he spent all day Saturday the next week visiting in the neighborhood and came in that Sunday, not with one van full, but with two van fulls. And that was so great, he went out and bought another van. And then he bought two buses. And a few months later when I got there, that Sunday school that had always averaged about 40 was running pretty close to 200. And Pat brought them all in. Well, of course, there weren't people in the church to drive those buses, so he got two of the people who worked for him who had their license to drive big trucks to drive the buses. And those two men brought their wives and kids, and they got saved. Well, then they brought their neighbors, and they got saved. And that Sunday morning service that had been running about 30, by the time I got there, was now running about 100. And it was great. It was wonderful. But one, well, I need to, parentheses here. That church had two congregations. They had the morning congregation and the evening congregation. And only a few people came to both. Uh, it was mostly, well, the evening service was mostly second or first generation Scandinavians who, because they had come from Sweden, went to the Lutheran church in the morning because if you're Swedish, you've got to go to the Lutheran church. And then they came to our church at night. And the Sunday morning was people who weren't Lutheran and they came in the morning. But they didn't come at night. But one Sunday night, one of these sweet little ladies came up to me and said, oh, tell me what I hear you're doing isn't true. I thought, oh, what am I doing? You know, God, are you revealing something to me? You know, I said, I don't know, what am I doing? She said, you're letting all kinds of strangers into our church on Sunday mornings. She said, I don't like that. So I was a lot younger there and probably not quite as mellow as I've learned to be. And I said, well, if you'd start coming on Sunday morning, they wouldn't be strangers. And she said, oh, and walked off. She never did come on Sunday morning, but a lot of those Sunday morning people started coming Sunday night. And soon we had to enlarge the seating on Sunday nights because they couldn't all fit in. And I tell you that only to tell you that heaven rejoices when one person is saved. And when someone who hasn't known the Lord gets saved, they really get on fire, usually. 
and tell everybody else. And they know people who aren't saved because that's who their friends are. I don't know about you, but I don't know very many people who aren't saved. I just, most of the people I've met since we've lived here are people who've gone to the churches that we've gone to. But sinners who get saved know other sinners. Well, John Wesley, you've all heard about many times, once preached a sermon and said to the people, you know, if you catch on fire for God, people are going to come and watch you burn. Uh, Isn't that true? People go where there's excitement. Uh, You've probably heard the story of the pastor who got awakened early one uh, one morning and was told that the church building was on fire, so he got dressed and run down there, and, and there were all kinds of people from the neighborhood standing around, and he said to one of them, I've never seen so many people from the neighborhood at the church. And the man said, it's because this church ain't never been on fire before. Now, that probably was true physically, but maybe, I don't know, maybe also true spiritually. But that's what Jesus did. He was on fire for God, and people came to watch him. They watched his excitement. Well, some of the people. The tax collectors and sinners were listening to Jesus, but the religious leaders were just grumbling about him. This man welcomes sinners, and not only does he welcome them, it was even worse, he ate with them. God welcomes sinners. Jesus, God in the flesh, welcomes sinners. Mark Horowitz is an artist and photographer based in Los Angeles. He was doing a photo shoot for a commercial for Crate and Barrel. I don't think we have a Crate and Barrel here, but it's similar to Bed, Bath, and Beyond. You know, it's a uh, home decor store. And somebody had put a whiteboard on a stand uh, in the scene, and he looked at it and thought, well, that doesn't look very homelike. So he went over and thought, I should just write something on it. It'll look more real in the, in the uh, photo. So he wrote his name. Well, actually, that's got to get it straight. He wrote, have dinner with Mark, and wrote his phone number, thinking, you know, that looks real. Well, in the next few weeks, he had 30,000 people call him saying, hey, I saw your ad. I'd like to have dinner with you. So he started a new campaign in his own life. He called it the National Dinner Tour. And over the next year, he visited over 10,000 different homes just to have dinner with them. And he said, I learned one thing. I learned a lot of people are very lonely and they just want someone to reach out to them. He said, I didn't intend to reach out to anybody, but I reached out to 30,000 people. And I guess he talked to all of them at least for a while. Well, can you imagine the loneliness of the tax collectors and the sinners? They were in a class all by themselves and nobody else would have anything to do with them. And I imagine they were happy that someone was willing to reach out and connect with them. So the Bible says Jesus saw them and he tolerated them. No one's going to correct me? (laughs) You're not going to shake your head? That's not what it says, is it? Of course not. What it says is he met with them and confronted them with their sins and told them what terrible people they were. That's not right either, is it? He welcomed them and ate with them. And this offended 
the religious leaders. I'm not sure how it happened, but in the last church we pastored, uh, all at once we had a bunch of young men, I don't know, six, seven of them, start coming to church. And they came in with their hats on. You know, that age group always wears baseball hats. And one of the ladies said, if you don't make them take their hats off, I'm not coming to church anymore. That's just disrespectful. And, you know, I, I wouldn't wear a hat in church. But that's me. But none of them had ever gone to church before. They didn't know church etiquette or church rules. They were comfortable coming and sitting in the back two rows with their hats on. And I said, Flossie, isn't it better that they be in church than that I tell them you can't come to church with a hat on and have them never come again? And she said, well, I suppose. And of course it is. We can't expect sinners to behave like Christians, nor can we expect new Christians to behave like old Christians. They've got to grow. They start out as baby Christians and they grow. Uh, had a district superintendent once who grew up on a, on, on a farm uh, up in northern Minnesota and had a lot of, I don't know, if you ever heard the senator, I think he's from Louisiana, Senator Kennedy on television with all the homey comparisons and, and stories and so on. Well, this man reminds, this district superintendent reminds me of him, but he said to us once, you know, I think we Christians have got it all wrong. I said, how's that? He said, well, Jesus said we were supposed to be fishers of men. I said, yeah. And he said, but somehow we've twisted it to say, God, you catch the fish and we'll clean them up. He said, I think we're supposed to catch them and let God clean them up. And I think he's got something there. You know, new Christians, we just need to be very patient with them and let them grow at the speed the Holy Spirit moves them. And if we try to push them too fast, well, it's like trying to teach a six-month-old baby to walk. They're going to fall. <laughs> you know, you've got to wait till the Holy Spirit works in their lives. Well, Jesus welcomed them, and he ate with them. And this offended the religious leaders. When Jesus wants to get an important point across, he usually tells one or two stories. And the chapter we just read, Luke 15, is unique in that Jesus tells three stories on the same theme. God loves us unconditionally. And that's not just inside these church walls. God loves those who have, uh, loves humans who've never walked inside a church. God loves those who've wandered away from him. God loves those who aren't even looking for him. God loves humans unconditionally. And if God loves us unconditionally, we need to learn to love ourselves and others unconditionally too. Uh, author Dwight Small writes, God does not love us for anything he can gain from loving us. Isn't that true? <laughs> I mean, he doesn't love us for what we can do for him. He just loves us. And he does not love us because we are deserving of it. And he certainly doesn't love us because we've earned it. He just loves us and reaches out to in grace simply because that is the nature of love and God is love. So the religious leaders grumbled about Jesus. We read, then Jesus told them this parable. 
Suppose you have a hundred sheep and you lose one. You go out and look for it. And after you found it, you rejoice and you invite everybody you know to come and rejoice. And the woman lost a coin and she lit a lamp and swept the house and searched until she found it. Then she invited everybody to come in and rejoice with her. The other day, I was trying to take, I don't know, if you notice the older you get, the more pills you take? <laughs> I mean, sometimes I feel like a pharmacist. Let's see, this one's morning. This one. Anyway, I dropped one of them. And I searched diligently for it, moved every chair in the room. I mean, it's $70 a month for that, that little pill, you know. So I searched for it until I found it. When I did, I said, hey, I found it. How much more important is a person to God? He paid a much greater price than $70 a month. It's the nature of God to love. Now, in those 10 verses that we read, the word joy or rejoicing is mentioned, uh, let's see, I've got it written down here. I'll find it five times. God takes joy in having a relationship with us. That's the whole reason for Jesus coming into the world. God came looking for us when we were lost, separated from him. Jesus came to show us God's love and to restore us to God by taking away the penalty of sin and death that separates us from God. Author Jean Fleming tells a story about something that happened to her church one Sunday morning. The pastor said, I had a young man stand up in his early 20s, and he said, Crockett came into my office this week and gave his life to Jesus Christ, and he wanted me to share that with all of you. The little four-year-old boy jumped up and said, hey, Crockett, way to go! And his mother said, sit down, you're in church, you can't be happy. No. <laughs> she said, sit down, you can't do that in church. But isn't that really the way we should feel when someone comes to Jesus to jump up and say, hey, way to go, great, fantastic, marvelous. We used to have a, a, a touring group. I think there were eight of them in the group that toured all over the world doing religious skits. They were like two or three minute skits, just really short ones, but they all had a tremendous message. They were, uh, I can't think of what the word is, but really short skits, kind of like parables, only in acting. And they told us that they were in Scotland one time and uh, their skits all were very funny, but with a tremendous impact on you. And they said they were doing their skits in this large Presbyterian church in Scotland. And usually they went an hour and a half, but they went about 40 minutes and they took a break. And they got backstage and said, they're not enjoying it all. Let's not, you know, let's not put them through any more misery. Let's do one more and, and, and close. So they did. And on the way out, the head deacon said to them, Oh my, I won't try to imitate a Scottish accent because I can't do it. He said, oh my, your skits were so funny we almost laughed out loud in church and we all know that's a sin. <laughs> Isn't that a shame? Man, when we come to God's house, we should rejoice and be happy. We're in our Father's house and he wants us to rejoice when we're here and be happy in him. Katie Davis Majors was just 18 years old when she decided to go to Uganda to work with children in poverty there. She writes that she quickly fell in, in love with the country 
And not long after starting her ministry there, Katie adopted four Uganda girls. Today, Katie and her husband have 15 children, 14 of them adopted from Uganda. In her blog, she writes about the early years in Uganda and says, I really didn't know the language much. I really couldn't talk to them much. But one of them said to me, we can see by your actions that you love us and led a great number of the Ugandans to Christ. But she tells of one time her little girl, one of the adopted children, came and said, Mommy, I want to accept Jesus in my heart like you keep telling people to, but I'm afraid I'll explode because he's bigger than my heart. She said, so I explained to her that she would not explode. She said, then Jesus came to me and said, but she should explode with happiness and with joy and with excitement and with enthusiasm. So I went back and told her that. She said, oh, that sounds like fun. I want Jesus in my heart. And maybe that's the message we should give to people. Joy comes from knowing Jesus. God takes joy in having a relationship with us. And having a relationship with God is the pathway to joy for us. That's what we're made for. So what's standing in the way of so many people coming to God? Jesus said, God is looking for you. But I guess the question is, do you want to be found? We had a little schnauzer that had diabetes, and we didn't know it until he lost his sight. That little guy was just amazing. He could get go anywhere and do anything. But one day we couldn't find him. We looked all over the house, we called his name, and he just wasn't there. Well, after he lost his sight, little Alex started hoarding food. Before that, he never did, and he'd never take food. You could put your plate right on the floor and he wouldn't even come over and sniff at it. He'd been trained by the previous owner and I never to do that. But he started grabbing any food he could find and hiding it. We'd find food in the closet, just everywhere, but we couldn't find him that day. And finally, I don't know what made me look, but I tipped back the recliner, and he was under the recliner with a whole pile of food in front of him. He didn't want to be found because he was enjoying that food that he'd found or that he'd hidden previously. Sometimes... We just don't want to be found because we're enjoying what we're doing. We don't want God, many people don't want God to find them because they're enjoying life and they think they've got it all and they don't know they don't have anything until they have Jesus. As we meet people, and just a little side note here because I've still got a few minutes and if I let you out early, you'll all be upset. So... Oh, you won't be? <laughs> anyway, I, I started driving Uber just for the money, but I'm having a great time because I'm meeting so many interesting people, and I've met so many teenagers and young adults who are Christians, and they're sharing Jesus with me. One of them said one day, you know, I was thinking that you... I'm too old to be using this modern technology. <laughs> Should have a megaphone, you know. But 
Anyway, he said, I worry about you. You drive all over the city with all kinds of traffic, and you never know who's getting in your car. Could I pray with you? I said, sure. He prayed quite a fiery prayer for my safety. And then he got out of the car at his high school and said, well, a bunch of lost kids in there. I got to try to win them to the Lord. It was encouraging to meet young people who want to lead others to the Lord. And I'm sure there's many in that high school who are lost because they've never heard the word. Uh, Glenn Millenew tells of suiting up in his combat gear in a Marine boot camp, uh, Marine boot camp class. The drill instructor told the class that he would inspect their uniforms after they put on their gear. One anxious Marine recruit ran up to the drill instructor and held out his helmet liner and said, Sir, this private's helmet liner does not fit this private's head, sir. The drill instructor, annoyed that the private had forgotten his instructions on how to adjust the helmet liner, said, Okay, private, this is what I want you to do. Go into that gear locker, uh, find a new head that fits your helmet liner, and use that one because the one you've got's not working. And uh, that was kind of a good answer to him, but I think God doesn't want us to get a new head. But he does want us to have a new way of thinking about him. He doesn't want to get a new head, but he does want us to think about those around us, maybe in a different way than we ever have before. He doesn't want want us to get a new head, but he does want us to have a new heart and live a new life. And all it takes is believing that Jesus is God and asking him to come into our lives and change us to be more like him. And I promise you, your heart won't explode except with joy and happiness. Uh, Pam and Joanne, would go back to the 